We are honored this morning to uh, have a presentation from former presiding judge C. Stephen McMurray, who attended a, uh, a continuing legal education on DSM-5 and borderline personalities and is now an expert on the same, or at least he plays one on TV. Uh, so let's welcome Judge McMurray. Thank you. So I am certainly not an expert on DSM-5 or borderline personality, not by a long shot. Um, but I did see, uh, offered by the State Bar, a program on borderline personality, and it was addressed to criminal defense attorneys and judges. And the thrust of it was that uh, these, are, these cases are often the defendants in front of you, and you need to know something about it in order to have a reasonable conversation about punishment, appropriate punishment, mitigation, all of that. Uh, and I looked at that and I was intrigued, uh, and I, I told Charlie I was willing to take it and try to get something useful from this class for, for JPs. Um, and he said, go for it. Um, now when I got into the class, I found that the class actually assumed a, a fairly high degree of familiarity with DSM-5. Uh, and my polling of JPs uh, indicated that most of them didn't know what DSM-5 was. So if the only thing that I managed to produce out of doing this class is to avoid having a JP be in the situation that I was in when somebody referred to uh, a diagnosis based on DSM-5 and I asked, what is DSM? Uh, and they looked at me like I was an idiot. If I can save any, uh, one JP from that scenario, then this class will have been worthwhile as far as I'm concerned, okay? So we're gonna start with, that's why this class is called DSM-5 in general and borderline personalities in particular because we're gonna get to the subject of borderline personalities, but I've got, I wanna orient everybody to DSM-5. These, this is DSM-5, this is the big one and this is the little one. And I bought these or I had the county buy them when I was the presider. So they belong to the county, they're available to everybody, you can check them out. Um, and uh, what's going to happen is someday somebody is going to, some defense attorney is going to refer to DSM-5 and you can say, you know, I have examined it, but I don't have a handy copy. Can you send me the relevant pages for my file? But, I, but you need to know basically what DSM-5 is. So um, DSM-5, the diagnostic, diagnostic, let's start the slides. Yeah, just use your paper, it's going to take a while. Okay. Um, DS, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Medical Disorders. It is uh, used okay. to diagnose psychiatric illness. It's the standard reference book for psychiatrists and psychologists. Um, and uh, it's important uh, it's important for diagnosis, treatment, recommendations, and also very important for insurance coverage. If you're going to get your uh, drugs for schizophrenia paid for by your insurance, you better have the, the numbers on the diagnosis that's in DSM-5 for the insurance to cover it. It's very, very basic. The original uh, uh, DSM-1 was published in 1952. It's been through various permutations. 
uh, DS1 through 4 used Roman numerals, DSM-5 switched from Roman numerals to numeric. DSM-5 was first was published in 2013. Um, the, the table of contents for uh, DSM-5 includes uh, these different classifications of mental disorders, and we're going to go through uh, a few of them with, uh, in a little bit more detail, but neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, that would have had what we used to call mental retardation, we, that's, we don't use that term anymore, but that's, that's an example of that. Bipolar is my family, manic depressive. Um, uh, trauma disorders would include PTSD. Um, feeding and eating disorders would be bulimia and um, anorexia. Um, uh, Substance-related and addictive disorders, neurocognitive disorders, uh, includes dementia. Um, and we're going to get into personality disorders, um, which is includes um, um, borderline personality, and the paraphilic disorders are all the kinky things that you get into, like sadism and masochism. Which ones? Paraphilic. <laughs> okay? But the, like I say, they're all classified, and there's all sorts of discussions about each of these disorders in DSM-5. If we, uh, my favorite page in the beginning of the manual is addressed straight to us and everybody else, and it's the, a cautionary statement about forensic use and use in court of DSM-5. DSM was not designed for, for use in court. It, it's used to, to assist clinicians, that's psychologists and psychiatrists, in assessment, case formulation, and treatment planning. Now, it turns out that there are benefits for the courts in referring to DSM-5. I think the classic one would be um, if you were a superior court judge presiding over a commitment proceeding, you would want a, a psychologist to provide you a, a DSM-5-based analysis that this person is schizophrenic and delusional uh, before you could make an informed decision about commitment. And also, it will check unwarranted speculation among lay people like us about um, uh, the consequences of mental illness. But, uh, and this is a quote, there's an imperfect fit between the concerns of a medical clinician in diagnosing somebody for medical purposes and the concerns of the law. They do not, they're not the same things. And a, a psychiatric diagnosis of any mental illness does not imply any specific level of impairment or disability. You can have a mental dis disability, uh, disorder and still be criminally guilty. There's no, there's no, uh, impl uh, there's no implication uh, that a, uh, a mental disorder uh, has impaired you from knowing between right and wrong. And the, there, so this page at the beginning of DSM-5 that is titled Cautionary Statement for Forensic Use has this last paragraph, which I think we all need to pretty much commit to basic memory. Use of DSM-5 to assess for the presence of a mental disorder by non-clinical, non-medical, or otherwise insufficiently trained individuals is not advised. 
if you walk away from this conversation and you sit on the bench and you tell somebody I think you're a borderline personality, I promise you that's going to be grounds for a complaint to the commission. You don't diagnose people. This is simply to raise awareness. Non-clinical decision makers should also be cautioned that a diagnosis by a professional does not carry any necessary implications regarding the etiology, the source or causes of the individual's mental disorder or the individual's degree of control over behaviors that may be associated with the disorder. Even when diminished control over one's behavior is a feature of the disorder, having the diagnosis in itself does not demonstrate that a particular individual is or was unable to control his or her behavior at a particular time. This is the caution. Why did I, do I still want to go ahead with this conversation? I'll tell you right now. My f fundamental reason for going ahead with this conversation is I think it is useful in developing for judges and JPs uh, a higher degree of compassion for the people that are in front of them. You don't need to speak the diagnosis to suspect something and have that su suspicion cause you to focus more and with more compassion. That's really what I'm going for here. Okay, so let's, we're going to go back up, to, to not to the table of contents, but we're going to look at a few of the um, classifications for DSM before we get to personality disorders. Quick look at neuro neurodevelopmental disorders. That was the I think that's the first chapter in DSM. Intellectual disability, also known as intellectual developmental disorder, has its onset during the developmental period and includes both intellectual and adaptive functioning deficits. A federal statute replaces the term mental retardation with intellectual disability. Um, another type of neuro neurodevelopmental disorder is a communication disorder that would include sound disorders, stuttering, and social pragmatic communication disorder. The autism di uh, diagnosis, the autism spectrum, is also part of a neurodevelopmental disorder and shows persistent deficits in social communication, social interaction, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, more frequent, by the way, in males than females by a ratio of two to one in children. That is also a neuro neurodevelopmental disorder. Specific learning disorder, motor disorders, including tics and Tourette syndrome. Those are all examples of neurodevelopmental disorder. If you want to read lots of pages on that for any particular reason, check out the DSM-5. Okay, moving on. Um, Neurocognitive disorders, that's a different classification. Drop 10 classifications down, I'm skipping around through the table of contents. Neurocognitive disorders includes dementia, delirium, and amnesia. They also includes Alzheimer's, vascular neurocognitive disorder, Parkinson's neurocognitive disorder due to traumatic brain injury or HIV infection, or Huntington's. Uh, neurocognitive disorders are unique among the DSM-5 categories in that these are syndromes for which the underlying pathology and frequently the etiology, the source, can be determined. 
We don't know that much about the source, for example, of schizophrenia. But for neurocognitive, we usually can figure out the source. Dementia is still retained as, a, as customary for the different dis degenerative disorders of older persons. Neurocognitive disorder is a preferred term for conditions such as brain injury affecting younger adults. Okay, let's now, oops, let's now jump, oops. What am I doing, Charlie? Here. Personality disorder, make it large. We're getting closer to, we're now in the area of personality disorders. Uh, uh, and I, we're going to get in just a moment to borderline personality. But DSM-5 will, will describe a personality disorder as an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates from the norm of the individual's culture. The pattern is seen in two or more of the following areas, cognition, affect, how they present themselves, interpersonal functioning, or impulse control. The enduring pattern is inflexible and pervasive across a broad range of personal and social situations. It typically leads to significant distress or impairment in social work or other areas of functioning. The pattern is stable and of long duration and its onset can be traced back to early adulthood or adolescence. So, in the area of personality disorders, we have various kinds of personality disorders. Paranoid, distrust or suspicious about other people's motives, that, that, that suspiciousness that other people's motives are malevolent. Schizoid, now that's not schizophrenia. The schizoid personality disorder is a detachment from social relationships and restricted emotional expression. Schizotypal, is an acute discomfort in personal relationships, cognitive distortions and eccentricities. Antisocial, and we're going to get more heavily into antisocial, but an antisocial personality disorder is, it shows a disregard for and a violation of the rights of others. Borderline, we're going to, again, we're going to get more into borderline. By the way, I think these two are closely related. Borderline personality is an instability in interpersonal relationships, self-image, and affects and marked impulsivity. Histrionic, excessive emotionality and attention seeking. I certainly have found occasionally a histrionic person in my courtroom. I'm not going to call them that, but you know who they not are. The judge, not the judge. <laughs> no, not the judge. Can you, um, like an antisocial for me, I thought would be more of a hermit, like no. introvert. We're going to get into no? it. Okay. But basically, an antisocial personality is a psychopath. Okay. Uh, no, I think a hermit might actually be more possibly schizoid. But you can study DSM-5 if you're interested. But this is the place to go, DSM-5. Narcissistic, grandiosity, need for admiration, lack of empathy. Avoidant, social inhibition, feelings of inadequacy, hypersensitivity to negative evaluation, a dependent personality. Um, by the way, um, when I represented Randy Greenwald uh, of the Tyson gang, um, in his file was a diagnosis that he was a dependent personality. 
submissive and clinging behavior related to an excessive need to be taken care of. Why in the world they housed him with Gary Tyson, the most dominant ass in the world? Well, anyway, that's another story. Obsessive compulsive preoccupation with orderliness, perfection, and control. Now, DSM-5 will actually group these personality <coughs> disorders um, into clusters. I'm not certain why, but maybe it's because they are considered to be related. Cluster A is uh, uh, the paranoid, the schizoid, and the schizotypal. Cluster B is antisocial and borderline, and again, we're going to get into these two both in some more detail. Histrionic and narcissistic are regarded uh, in cluster, treated in cluster B. Cluster C is the avoidant personality, the dependent personality, and the obsessive compulsive. So now, Lenore, let's look more at um, the antisocial personality. A person with an antisocial personality disorder shows a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others, occurring since the age of 15 with at least three of um, the following. A failure to conform to social norms, for example, frequent, being arrested frequently, deceitfulness, repeated lying, use of aliasness, or, or actually deceitfulness, repeated lying, use of aliases, conning others for profit or pleasure. That's one of the characteristics. Impulsivity, irritability and aggressiveness often involved in fights or assaults. Reckless disregard for the safety of self or others and a consistent irresponsibility regarding either work or finances, and also a lack of remorse. Um, yes? Can I make just two observations? I, I, and if I remember correctly, the antisocial personality is strongly romantically attracted to the dependent personality. So the, the clingy person yes. and they are yes. or narcissistic. There's a real strong attraction there, so we sometimes see couples like that. We, I think you do. Yeah, and, then and uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, this is fascinating, is that when you have this, this definition of personality disorder, it says typically leads to significant distress or impairment. So a lot of times the folks are not distressed at all. They're perfectly comfortable in, mm -hmm. in their um, disorder. Um, I think particularly the antisocial personality can be very comfortable right. and, and even smug. Because they don't care. They do not care. And it comes on early onset. And by the way, it's also much more common in males. Everything is. No. <laughs> no, actually. So far, the things I've looked up, it says more common in males. Borderline personality is more common in females. That one, yeah. Um, I think, by the way, borderline personality and antisocial personality are very closely related. The di main difference is probably aggressiveness. Testosterone may t t be the difference that makes an anti uh, a psychopath from borderline personality. But borderline personalities are also very definitely the type of person that can connect with a psychopath. Mm -hmm. For the reasons that we'll look at. Um, let's get to borderline personality. An overview. 
The main feature of a borderline personality is a pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, instability in self-image and emotions. People with borderline personality disorder are usually very impulsive, often demonstrating self-injurious behaviors, risky sexual behaviors, cutting, suicide attempts. Borderline personality disorder occurs in most by early adulthood. The unstable pattern of interacting with others has persisted for years and is usually closely related to the person's self-image and early social interactions. By the way, we'll see later, but I, it, it makes sense here to interject that borderline personalities are, have often been the victims of abuse as children. The pattern is present in a variety of settings, for example, not just at work at home, and is often accompanied by a similar lability, fluctuating back and forth, sometimes in a quick manner, in a person's emotions and feelings. Borderline, um, the person who taught the class talked about uh, one of his clients who was a borderline personality and she was the daughter of a doctor uh, and she was in trouble with the law because she was stealing her from her father's office his prescription slips and handing them over to her worthless boyfriend who was then forging names and obtaining drugs for sale. And it's pretty clear that she herself would never have done that. She was only doing it because she needed the approval of the worthless boyfriend. So, um, borderline personality disorder individuals are very sensitive to environmental circumstances. The perception of impending separation or rejection or the loss of external structure can lead to profound change in self-image, affect, cognition, and behavior. Borderline personality disorder individuals experience intense abandonment fears and inappropriate anger, even when faced with a realistic time-limited separation or when there are unavoidable changes in plans. For example, sudden despair in reaction to a clinician's announcing the end of the hour of consulting. Panic or fury when someone important to them is just a few minutes late or must cancel an appointment. They may believe that this abandonment implies that they are bad. These abandonment fears are related to an intolerance of being alone and a need to have other people with them. Relationships and the person's emotions may sometimes be seen by others as characterized as being shallow. Let's get, dig, delve a little bit more into uh, the abandonment issues that are confronting borderline personalities. Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined, imagined abandonment. The perception of impending separation or rejection or the loss of external structure can lead to profound changes in self-image, emotion, thinking, and behavior. Someone with borderline personality disorder will be very sensitive to things happening around them. They experience intense abandonment fears and inappropriate anger even when faced with a realistic separation or when unavoidable changes in plans occur. They can become very angry with someone for being a few minutes late or having to cancel a lunch date. This is a little bit repetitive before I know. But their frantic efforts to avoid abandonment may include impulsive actions such as self-mutilation, 
or suicidal behavior. Borderline personality disorder, people idealize potential caregivers or lovers at the first or second meeting, demand to spend a lot of time together, and share the most intimate details early in a relationship. However, they may switch quickly from idealizing other people to devaluing them. This is the lability characteristic. Feeling that the other person does not care enough, does not give enough, or is not there enough. These individuals can empathize with and nurture other people, but only with the expectation that the other person will be there in return to meet their own needs or demands. These individuals are prone to sudden and dramatic shifts in their view of others who may alternatively be seen as beneficial supports or as cruelly punitive. Such shifts often reflect disillusionment with a caregiver whose nurturing qualities have been idealized or whose rejection or abandonment is expected. Which, by the way, it describes to a T my sister. Which one did we say was Ken, the, the one we were describing Ken Shabrana? We already covered that. Okay. We can go back in a little bit. Okay. I didn't even hear the, the statement made by the after over there. after the podcast. We'll do a chart and put all the judges in. Pictures. <laughs> we already know where some people go. Yeah. <laughs> so which one was mine? The narcissist. <laughs> we didn't say it. <laughs> people with borderline personality disorder experience sudden dramatic shifts in self-image characterized by shifting goals, values, and vocational aspirations. There may be sudden changes in opinions and plans about career, sexual identity, values, and types of friends. These individuals may suddenly change from the role of a needy supplicant for help to a righteous avenger of past mistreatment. They flip over very quickly. Although they usually have a self-image that is based on being bad or evil, individuals with borderline personality disorder may at times have feelings that they do not exist at all. Such experience usually occurs in situations where the individuals feel a lack of meaningful relationship, nurturing, and support. These individuals may show worse performance in unstructured work or social aspirations. 75% of borderline personality disorder subjects are females. 75% of antisocial are male. 75% of borderline personalities are female. Borderline personality disorder subjects may constitute 6% of the population. Now, if they're 6% of the population, they're more of the population that you see in your criminal calendar. 10% of them will die prematurely, suicide or other, or other acts of violence will uh, cause them to die. They have often been the victim of abuse as children. And they often have serious related issues such as the abuse of drugs or self-destructive conduct, mutilation, cutting, that sort of thing. All right. So. This will help you s see a person who's possibly borderline personality 
disorder uh, in your court because uh, you'll hear about it uh, because of problems between them and their attorney. Borderline personality disorder people are the worst possible clients for a criminal defense attorney. And it's because they frequently refuse good advice and undermine the strategy of defense that the lawyer is attempting to put out. They never feel satisfied with representation. Uh, they have never-ending complaints. They often report the lawyer to the bar and attempt to ruin reputations. By the way, this is the pattern of it. Usually starts out as a sweetheart romance. The client loves the attorney, thinks they're the best possible person for them, but then they flip, and this is what, how it turns out. They are exceedingly needy. They're consuming the time and energy and thought of the attorney, and they have poor ego differentiations. They lack boundaries in their behavior. Uh, and so again, that you may not see the borderline per personality in front of you, but you may suspect based upon re uh, reports about what's going on with the attorney that the the defendant is a borderline personality. You know, you know Judge, I, I didn't know about this, but yesterday we had a status conference on the DUI case, and the gentleman, the defendant, had fired his first public defender, then the second public defender, then the then there's a second stage, uh, OBPG or something, I don't, I don't know what it was, and then we, he fired that one, and he didn't want to go to, he wanted to fire the attorney right there at the status conference, so he could pre proceed right. So it's kind of interesting, because I didn't... And remember, Enrique, what I said at the beginning. For me, learning about this brings forward a level of compassion for this person, and that's what I'm hoping this conversation is going to do for the rest of us. They're wrestling with something. Doesn't tell you how to handle it. <laughs> okay. We're now, uh, we're getting close to, frankly, to the end of it, as far as I'm concerned. But um, this has to do with uh, con considerations of mitigation. If you found a person uh, that uh, guilty of the crime, uh, and you're considering punishment, and you have reason to think that they may be a borderline personality. What is that? 1514 seconds to step down. Do you know what that is? Okay. Well, we're. If you're faced in that situation and you're, um, I mean, ideally you'll have a um, defense attorney with a diagnosis who can make these arguments for you, but, this, but uh, if you did, uh, you'd want to know what the defendant's past looked like, uh, especially be looking for um, connections. If, as I mentioned before, a borderline personality person may have been acting to get the approval of someone else. So the punishment that you're designing uh, might want to include a separation from the uh, bad person. Uh, what did role, uh, similar question, what role did the defendant play in the criminal activity? Were they the mover and shaker or were they along for the ride? How likely will the defendant repeat this behavior? Will incarceration promote deterrence? 
what will promote both justice and respect for the law? Has the defendant accepted responsibility for wrongdoing? And has the defendant already been punished by their behavior? Um, I'd like to conclude this presentation. It went a lot faster than I thought, which is good. But I'd like to conclude this presentation by telling you a couple stories. First of all, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Beautiful Mind, uh, but I highly recommend it um, because um, I realize I real it, it produced a great deal of compassion for me when I'm dealing with people with schizophrenia. Before the movie, my first reaction to somebody that I recognized having schizophrenia was fear and loathing. But after a beautiful mind, uh, I realized that the person in front of me is wrestling with demons I don't see, and they do. You can't let your guard down because you could be perceived as one of the demons that the person's wrestling with. Uh, but uh, I recommend the movie uh, as triggering compassion. And right after the, that, I saw that movie, I was doing a injunction against harassment proceeding. A woman came in and told me that her, the person assigned as her mental health care worker had raped her. And I set a hearing prior to issuance on the uh, injunction against harassment and notified the defendant who showed up for the hearing with his supervisor. And the plaintiff took the stand and testified and went for more than 30 minutes in the most painful, graphic description of her rape. It was agonizing. And I said to her when she was finished, I said, now did he do this? And she said, yes. Do you think he will do it again? Yes. Why do you think that? because he keeps changing. When he first did it, he was Oriental. Then he was American Indian. And now look at him. And he keeps coming at me. And my heart broke because I knew I had a rape victim on the stand in front of me. I knew that. I just didn't have the perp in the room. But, and, and by the way, I did not issue the injunction, and I asked him and his supervisor if they could get her home to a safe place, and they said yes, and the three of them walked out together. But that is, I'm telling you that story because all, any of the work that I have done with DSM-5 um, and mental illness, uh, allows me to evolve my level of compassion and um, the more time I'm willing to spend with these people uh, and the more I'm willing to try to be helpful in their lives. And that's why I recommend this to you. So, Charlie, that's my presentation. Well, and, and, and you aimed a lot of this at the criminal sphere. And I actually think that where we're going to see this more often than not is in the protective order sphere, 
uh, particularly when we start to have the hearings and you start to see how the people are interacting with each other. Um, so I think this is fascinating to, to look at in that context. The other place we're going to see it really is with homeless people. Uh, and because um, I mean, for the most part we don't do a lot of criminal trials, they usually plead. Uh, but you know, So do we have any questions? Any other questions, comments? Yes? Well, I'd like to make a comment about your story. Those questions are really brilliant. I mean, it would have been really easy to say, um, did this man do it, and stop, right? And then did, well, I, there were three questions, and you, and you persisted. And so I just think that it's just really instructive to think about how, at, when you got to the third question is when you got the really important information. And it would have been easy to not ask the question or to ask the first question and just go, Woof, whatever, or the second question and throw up your hands. So I just thought that was really helpful to hear that. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little, talk here a little bit about experiences with boundaries because um, some some of the folks that we've described in here might be inclined to push boundaries in in a, in a hearing. Um, looking back, I, I remember one particular case, and I don't know, I didn't have any uh, uh, DSM five background here, but uh, the in hindsight, maybe I should have. The woman was, uh, it was a civil trial, and the woman kept interrupting whoever was testifying, persistently interrupting, saying, you're lying, or things like that. And I cautioned her and cautioned her and cautioned her. And finally got pretty emphatic about it. Uh, and we got through the, uh, the, the plaintiff's case. I, she was the defendant. And I said, you know, now I want to hear your side of this. He goes, oh, no. I said, what do you mean? I, I'm not t testifying. I go, Why not? Because you're not going to believe me. You're not going to believe me. I can tell you've already made your, up your mind. And I said, okay. So I assure you that I haven't made up my mind. And I also assure you that I want to hear your story. Uh, and I want to focus on your story. And we're going to take a 10-minute break. And when we come back in 10 minutes, I hope you will take the stand and tell me your version of this. I've cut you off I, before. I had to when the other person was. But I'm not going to cut you off now. Let's be back in 10 minutes. And came back in 10 minutes. She says, nope, she hadn't moved. I'm not taking the stand. There's no use for it. And so I had to rule against her. In hindsight now, I think she probably, I'm not, I'm not going to even try to classify what kind of disorder, but I think it was a mental disorder uh, to the person that I was dealing with. Um, and I don't know that I would handle it any differently, uh, given my responsibilities there. But you are going to see these things. You, excuse me. You have seen these things in your job, and you're going to see more of it. And hopefully... Um, this class will, or this conversation will help you be more um, familiar with it and also know where, where to go if you want to look up DSM-5 for any reason. Charlie has it for you. Let's say you're at a and your bells are going off. Hey, I might have a problem here. 
and the person is not uh, more on the cognitive side, not understanding what you're saying to them uh, procedurally. Would you? How would you handle that on but appointing counsel? Let, let, yeah, let's let's make certain there is a distinction here. Okay, um, I have not been talking about Rule 11 situations. Rule 11 is incompetent to stand trial, and we in Maricopa County uh, uh, can kick a. Uh, case up to Superior Court for an evaluation of, of the person's ability to stand trial, ability to be held responsible criminally. But that is an extreme case. The, what we've been talking about is a lot of nuances far short of Rule 11. So if, you're, if your bells are going off at an arraignment because you don't think this person is competent, then I don't know how Yarnell handles um, uh, evaluations for doing it, but we, excuse me, Charlie, we're still sending them to Superior Court and Justice Court. Yeah, and, and what Dennis is talking about is a neurocognitive disorder. Uh, what happened in Wickenburg is I, I started uh, appointing the public defender more for elderly people who didn't have family members who could you thought help it was dementia? Dementia, yes. Um, so that, that becomes pretty difficult when that's an issue. And I just say I've had two, two cases where I, uh, one, one gentleman, he just was not comprehending what I was saying to him. And I said, you know what, I just think it'd be better if you had somebody yeah. else to talk to. Gave him a public defender. Mm -hmm. I had another one where I did the same thing. Well, and, the and, and, more of an and giving the public defender, the public defender is the person who would initiate the Rule 11 evaluation. So that was the right thing to do. Because they're trained on how to do that. I had a civil case where it was a debt collection and the defendant's response to the lawsuit was, I paid this debt, um, and it was paid by, you know, she said, Jesus Christ. And then um, she kept answering, she's like, and I don't understand why they're still trying to collect this debt, because I got a check from a higher court, and, you know, and she said, the first check I sent was for this amount, it was paid from the church, and the second time, Jesus Christ paid it, and then the third time, God the Father paid it. So we set it for trial, you know, because she gave an answer, and they wanted to have summary judgment, but I wanted to see who this person was saying this and then maybe explain to her, you know, we don't, well, just, just to see. So I remember at the end, you know, and I had to summarize, and I said, so you're saying to her, you know, I spoke to her, I said, so you're saying the first check that, you know, didn't, that you thought paid your debt was paid through the church, and then the second one was Jesus Christ and the God the Father. But um, you don't have access to any canceled checks or anything to show proof for the court. And she said, no, I don't. So I said, well, because of the lack of the evidence, I'm going to have to find in favor of the plaintiff because I need to see some evidence of that. So I was able to explain to her, you know, have that empathy. And I remember when she left, and then afterwards the attorney said, why did we set this for trial? And we said, well, I needed to see who yeah. this person was yeah. and let her have her day in court and then explain things to her. Um, she's like, okay, I understand. But, you know, the attorney just thought, this is craziness. Why would you even set this for trial? I said, well, this is why, you know. But it was kind of interesting. Lenore, I, I, I do appreciate what you're saying, and I f find particularly in the area of evictions, Sometimes I think we have to have a trial, even though I know how it's going to turn out. Yeah. But I have to be able to hear the person before I rule. <coughs> the question is not really, a I mean, it's a disorder, but it's not <coughs> it's mental. It's more of capacity. 
And I've had several, what I believe, were illiterate or functionally illiterate individuals um, in, during an eviction. And when you were trying to work with them, their fear of not being able to read or to write was overwhelming. And when they brought some really good issues of habitability of the residents, and they didn't want to go forward because they, and I didn't learn this till later, they couldn't write it down. When I asked them to come up and just you know write it down, mm. they didn't have that capacity. But it, it's, it's not, how do you deal with that? I mean, do you, have, you don't want to say in front of everyone, you know, are you able to read or write? Maybe you could pass them a note. I mean, well, then you'd know. <laughs> no, I, 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 don't, I don't have a, a good answer for that. I, I commend you for being sensitive and, and, and identifying that as an issue. Yeah, I mean, I could move forward for him, but I knew that there was a counterclaim or there was something there, but uh, he didn't feel comfortable of moving forward in, and because he couldn't read. All right, I assume. And because and I only knew that later because he had my staff write everything. Um, like I said to Lenore, sometimes I'm setting trials. This e was a trial. Even oh, you're at the trial. I'm at the trial. Okay. And civil areas are frustrating. I had a young lady come in, and the first thing she said to me is, "I have a Q IQ of 68." What am I supposed to do with that other than be more sensitive? And as it proceeded, because it was in a garnishment setting and they appeared and they, it, it came back and back, um, she really was struggling. We did finally get a family member to come with her. So at least somebody was able to have a discussion who was supportive, but you talk about <coughs> I think, uh, maybe Charlie was, yeah. If you don't have a family member with somebody with diminished capacity, it makes it more challenging than if you can at least feel like there's some support structure for them. But I wish we had more options in civil, like we do in criminal, but I don't know that, that we have them. We can't appoint attorneys. No. But then diminished capacity is different than this borderline personalities and a personality issue, correct? Right? Oh, yeah, they're, there, they're different evaluations. Diminished capacity, if you're thinking about neuro... Like with the IQ being so low or not being able to read and write is different than having a personality disorder that causes them to be irrational or you know, yeah, antisocial. I had a case... Yes, but the solutions could potentially cross over. Yeah, and I think it had to play it by ear. I mean, I had a trial for an eviction action and it was the behavioral wellness place that a lot of people stay because mm -hmm. they have problems. And the mom kept saying, I, he, can't, he can't stand alone on this child. I need to speak for him. I need to speak for him. And I said, well, let me see how he does. And if I feel like he does need help, then we'll go there. And this young man did better at cross-examination than probably any defend, defendant I have ever had. You know, because that's generally the problem with the pro per, um defendant or litigant is that they don't know how to ask questions you know you have to help them like make that into a question and this this guy had it was so good and I was like you know what ma'am you can sit down your son's doing really well but he was in the behavioral wellness place because he was SMI and had mm -hmm. all these issues but that didn't limit him intellectually 
Keep in mind, he can't have the family member represent. Right, exactly. That's what I told her. But she was saying, he can't speak for himself. He's in this program because he has all these problems. And, you know, I said, well, let's just see, you know, how it goes. And if there had been a problem, then I would have said, maybe continue and figure out how to get him the help, maybe through an attorney or get appointed his yeah. legal guardian or something. All right, any other questions for Judge McMurray? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Charlie, these are yours. Actually, why don't we pass it The light. DSM light. Give the young people over there a little bit. That's the big one. We deserve a little bit.